Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Urbandale, Iowa. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. Well, take your Bibles and turn to Daniel. Daniel chapter 2. As you know from last week, Daniel had just graduated from Babylon's three-year education program for Jewish deportees. And it was at that time that Yahweh gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream that troubled him to his very core. It's speculated, speculated that uh, perhaps he could not remember the details of the dream in, uh, enough to be able to share it with others, or that um, he just chose not to, to see what his wise men would say or do. But um, it becomes clear that he wanted to know, and it was a very important thing to him, and so he gathered all of his wise men advisors together. And by the way, I'm not going to use the words wise men advisors anymore. I'm just going to call them Chaldeans. So when you hear that, you'll know what I'm talking about. He gathered them and he demanded of them that they tell him the dream and they also give him the interpretation of it. And he made it very clear that if they could not do that or would not do that, that he would have their bodies torn limb from limb and he would make their houses into a dung heap. Nice guy. Of course, we know that they were unable to conjure up the dream that he had. They could have given him some form of an interpretation, be it right or wrong, but they could have done something with that if they would have had the dream recounted to them. But since they couldn't recount his dream, uh, they told him that what he asked for was not humanly possible. Uh, that the uh, knowledge that he was wanting laid only with the gods, plural, as, from their culture uh, themselves. And so then, true to his word, the command went out to kill all the Chaldeans. And this would include Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We found that Daniel possessed a certain godly demeanor. And because of that, uh, he was able then, in the face of being confronted with his own death, to boldly request of the king that he give him a few extra days to be able to consult his God, and that he was confident that he would then be able to come back and give him what he had asked for. And so the king granted Daniel and his friends this time, and they set their hearts to prayer. After their prayer, we discover that God answered, and he gave them the content of the dream and its interpretation, and Daniel went back to the king to confidently proclaim what God had given him. So that's a review very quickly of where we were last week. Today, we start by looking at the dream itself. We're going to look at the interpretation We'll quickly consider Daniel's promotion and also Nebuchadnezzar's worship of Yahweh, God Most High. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to open the Bible and to share a few things with the people here. And I pray that your spirit will empower the proclamation of the word uh, for, for their good, for my good, uh, for your glory, and not only... 
I, do I ask that we would understand what is here, but that we would receive something from it that challenges us to live for you in the pagan world in which we are presently part of. And Lord, as you do that, we will give you the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at Nebuchadnezzar's dream, verses 31 through 35. Daniel said to the king, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Wow, what an image to behold in your night dreams. I have a little video here. I hope we're uh, good. We're able to do that. That'll kind of give us just a visual of that image, all right? And so here we see the head of gold. And then we move down to a chest and arms of silver, which eventually then goes ahead and moves down to a torso and thighs of bronze or brass, which then leads to legs of iron. And then finally, feet of iron that is mixed with clay or clay that is mixed with iron. Now, when you think about this image, right? I mean, it's no wonder that Nebuchadnezzar was disturbed. It's a bizarre kind of an image. But the most frightening, the most disturbing part was not the image itself, but what is to follow that we're about to uncover now. Verse 34, Daniel said, As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, uh, the, iron the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So this, then, is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar wanted recounted for him. It was a dream that Yahweh actually planted in his mind. He planted it in his mind to inform him of things that were yet to come in the unfolding of human history. And that brings us to truth point number one, if you have your note guides with you. The way that Nebuchadnezzar received his dream demonstrates that God has access to the human mind. Now, one of the things that many people are afraid of is that they think that Satan has access to your mind. But I want to tell you he does not have access to your mind. He has access to your ear in some way that I can't fully explain. 
He is able to communicate in some form or fashion with people. So I say he has access to your ear that might plant thoughts in your mind. But he can't directly access your mind. Only God can do that. Only God can put something in your mind without any other uh, help. We go on with part two of truth point number one. We find uh, that uh, he gave, he gives visions and dreams. He can give insights. He can speak to the deepest part of our being. He knows our thoughts, and that can be scary. And he can plant his thoughts in the human mind. Now, this is a truth that is real for the Christian, but it is also real for the pagan as well. Psalm 139 tells us that there is no place where God's presence is not found. And if God's presence is literally everywhere and there is no place where his presence is not found, then I would have to believe that his presence can be found in the human mind as well. And I want you to just consider the significance of that truth in the time in which we live. You see, we may not be able to reach the heart and mind of a president or of a governor or of a friend who we love and are concerned about, but we need to remember that God has 24-7 access to all of these, which tells me that prayer for others is not a waste of time. Now, David talked very well here about the folly of getting on the Internet and, and, and just you know string after string of, of our frustrations and anger. That really does nothing of any good. I'll be honest with you. It just does nothing that's good. But if you will stop doing that and get on your knees and talk to God about those things and bring them to him repeatedly, he has the power to do something about it, of which your comments on Facebook have got a power to do nothing but irritate other people. You understand what I'm saying? I hope so. What we discover when we study Scripture is that Yahweh is sovereign over all. He can speak to the inner man. He can speak to the inner woman. He can make his presence known. And he can make his plans know, known as well. And so we see Yahweh revealing his plans to Nebuchadnezzar. He did this by way of a dream. But he chose to withhold the meaning of the dream to the king and chose to leave the interpretation to a young Jewish exile named Daniel. As we come to verses 36 through 41, we begin to discover the interpretation of the dream. Uh, verse 36, Daniel said, this was the dream he has told Nebuchadnezzar what he was looking for. This is what you saw in your dream. Now, he says, we will tell the king its interpretation. I, I, this is just a small point. But notice there, he said, we will tell you. Uh, we probably aren't standing up there doing the talking. Daniel is. But Daniel had invited his friends to join him in prayer. And so he's sharing the credit. He's saying, you know, this isn't all about me. My friends here, they love the same God I do. They serve the same God I do. They joined into this matter with me in prayer. And so God has revealed this to us. He may be the spokesman, but it's about us 
the servants of the living God and what he has graciously supplied to us. So now let's follow Daniel as he takes each piece of the image, giving the interpretation of it to Nebuchadnezzar. We start then with the head of gold, verses 37 and 38. Daniel said, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Now, there's several things to be brought out. I'm going to share with you four observations that I make from this. So follow along with me if you would, please. First of all, I think Daniel's statements clearly communicate that the only reason that Nebuchadnezzar was great was because Yahweh had chosen to make him great. It's a reminder to him, or perhaps a revelation for the first time, that the glory that you have, the authority that you have, the power that you have over all these things under your hand, it's not yours because you're great. It's yours because the great God in heaven has given it to you, and he is the one for this period of time who has made you great. Imagine standing before that king who thinks he's basically a god and telling him that it is the God of heaven, the God that I serve, who has given you this kingdom. And he is the one who has granted you authority over his creation. And the implication here is this, that if Yahweh is the one who gave it to him, then Yahweh can take it away. And that was important for Nebuchadnezzar to realize. And when we come to chapter 4, we'll find out just how true and important that statement uh, is. Number two, the head of gold is the only part of the image that is singular or unified. What I mean by that is as you look at each of the other pieces, uh, they consist of divided parts. And it's because of this singularity, this unification that existed with Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon that they prospered the way they did under his reign for 43 years. This is a one kingdom that was not divided. But these others, as we will see, are. Number three, as we look at the image, we find that it begins with the most valuable of metals, and it descends to metals of lesser value, gold, silver, bronze, iron, decreasing value. However, it's also interesting to take note that as you go from gold to silver to bronze to iron, we're increasing in strength. Just some things to observe from his vision. Also, number four, each of the metals that are represented in the image say something about the empire that they represent. Babylon was literally all about gold. The historian Herodotus said that he had never seen such an abundance of gold 
as he saw in Babylon. Babylon had gold everywhere. It was their trademark, so to speak. Uh, and in chapter 3, next Sunday, we are going to see Nebuchadnezzar build a statue, and it's going to be fully overlaid with gold. Babylon and gold, somewhat synonymous from that perspective. As it relates to this form of Babylon, Babylon lasted about 70 years in this particular form. Moving on to the chest and arms of silver, verse 39, the very first part, Daniel goes on to say, Another kingdom inferior to you, or lesser than you, shall arise after you. He doesn't mention the silver there, but he did when he was recounting uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And, and, and there's no question among Bible scholars that the chest and the arms of silver represent the Medo-Persian empires. Now, the Medes and the Persians had been separate kingdoms, but they came together to form an alliance to overthrow Babylon. And this actually happened before Daniel died. And we will find as we continue on through Daniel that for a short amount of time, he served them just like he had served Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. History tells us that despite the alliance of the two kingdoms, they did not enjoy the solidarity that Babylon had. And uh, as it is often the case with partnerships, the conflict that existed between them weakened their rule. Now when you look at the Medo-Persian Empire, you find that just as gold played an identifying role with Babylon, so too does silver with the Medes and the Persians. Uh, Aramaic was the language. The words for silver and money in Aramaic are exactly the same. And we discover when we dig into history that during their rule, the Medes and the Persians developed a system of taxation that required everyone to pay their taxes in silver coin. So if you have everyone in your kingdom bringing silver coin to you to pay their taxes, what's going to happen? Well, your coffers are literally going to just run over with silver. And they became known for that abundance of silver. The Medo-Persian Empire lasted just about 200 years. As we move on to the second statement there in verse 39, we're looking now at the belly and thighs of bronze. Daniel said, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. Uh, the bronze or the brass represents Greece. And the greatest leader of Greece was Alexander the Great. I want you to notice that Greece is represented just like um, uh, Medo-Persians represented by two arms, right? The chest is singular, but two arms. The belly is singular, but the thighs are two separate um, parts of the image. And um, this then is communicating about the division that was of Greece. Now, theirs was not two kingdoms coming together. Instead, the division that happened with Greece was four generals who had served Alexander uh, creating the division. After Alexander died, the four generals who served him seized power. They, two of them took Syria, two of them took Egypt, and these then, these two became the major facets of the Greek empire. As to the bronze or brass, the Greeks were one of the first kingdoms to adorn their soldiers 
with metal helmets. If you were to look at the average soldier of the Medo-Persians, they were wearing cloth turbans. <laughs> but the Greeks switched over to metal, and the metal they picked was brass or bronze. So these soldiers of Greece wore bronze or brass helmets. They also carried bronze or brass um, uh, shields. Uh, the Greek Empire, it lasted just under 200 years. Verse 40 brings us then to the legs of iron. Daniel said, and there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. Uh, it shouldn't be hard for us to understand that the legs of iron represent the Roman Empire. And Rome was just as Daniel said. It was an empire that broke and crushed anyone who stood in their way of world domination and conquests. Uh, Rome also, we have two, two, two legs there, Rome also became divided. Uh, the West was represented by the city of Rome that lasted around 500 years, and the East represented by Constantinople that lasted about 1,100 years. Now, there's just a little point here. I know it sounds almost like a history lesson, doesn't it? It's like you're being back in school again. I'm sorry. But sometimes we just have to go through the history because it's important. Now, here's something that may interest you. Although Babylon and Rome came to an end as world empires, their way of thinking and their influence did not come to an end. In fact, Babylon's way of thinking still has a place in the world today. And Rome definitely still has a place in the world today. And when we switch over in September and begin to open up the book of Revelation, we're going to find both ba Babylon and um, um, uh, the other country. <laughs> Rome, thank you. Babylon and Rome. We're going to find them prominent in the storyline of Revelation. So they may be done as world empires right now, but there's going to be a resurgence, at least of the thought and the influence that was theirs. We come to verses 41 through 43, and we find the feet of iron and clay. And Daniel said, and as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they shall not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. So, what kingdom or kingdoms is represented by the feet? Iron and clay mixed together. Well, I'm of the opinion that the feet represent every other kingdom after Rome passed off the scene. Hundreds of kingdoms, empires, 
countries that have come and gone, some strong for a while, but eventually overcome by the weakness that the clay represents. This may interest you. I believe America is in those feet. I believe America is in those feet. There's no question that we have become a world empire. So far, we've lasted 247 years. But who can deny that our clay is outpacing our iron? And how much longer will the iron maintain our national sovereignty with so much clay becoming the substance of our daily existence? Of course, I can't answer that question. Only God knows. But that's where we are. We're in the feet. Now, Daniel also mentioned ten toes that are part of the feet. Now, these represent nations as well. Now, they may already be in existence, or they may still be forming. But what we will find as we turn into the book of Revelation is that they play a prominent role in the global but brief rule of a man who in Scripture is referred to as the Antichrist. So when we get into Revelation, you're going to begin to see those toes coming back into a place of focus. Verses 44 through 45, the stone cut without hands. Daniel said, and in the days of those kings, what kings? Well, he's referring to the kings that are represented by the ten toes. The God of heaven, Yahweh, will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God, Daniel said, has made known to the king what shall be after this. He ends by saying the dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. The stone cut without hands is none other than the Son of God incarnate, Jesus, who is the Christ. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, tells us that he is a tested stone, a precious cornerstone. He is a sure foundation. When we look into the life of Christ, we find that he was tested in his first advent, and he showed himself worthy of all trust through his sinless life through his substitutionary death on the cross for sin, through his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to heaven to take his place at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the cornerstone of God's redemptive work. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22 would be a place to go and see that. But not only is Jesus the cornerstone of the positive work of salvation, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 tells us that for those who reject him, he becomes a stone of stumbling. He becomes a rock of offense. And Daniel 
spoke of that in the ultimate fulfillment when Jesus returns to earth. When he comes with his resurrected saints to crush the Antichrist, the beast, the false prophet, and Satan himself. He will crush the feet of iron and clay with the ten toes. And with that, a time known as the time of the Gentiles. A time that began when Babylon sacked Jerusalem. And it will go all the way till that point when the stone falls on the feet, when Jesus falls on the, the nations of the world. The time of the Gentiles then will come to an inglorious end, being crushed into chaff that blows away in the winds of history. What a day that will be. I look forward to being there. I look forward to seeing that. I look forward to my champion my King, my Savior, my Lord, my God, triumphing in a certain confident way. How about you? Amen. Amen. Truth point number two. This one's really important now. All that to get here. No matter what you may see or hear about the nations of the earth and the plans of those who serve Satan's agenda, be assured God is in control. Do you believe that today? Do you really? That God is in control? I mean, look around the world. Everything is just falling apart. Everything is going, as they say in West Virginia, to hell in a handbasket. Don't ask me to define that. It's hard to define. It's destruction in a handbasket, okay? Yeah. And it's easy, is it not? To think that everything is going crazy and God can't possibly win and the church is going to go down in flames. But I want to tell you that's not true. Why, well, just yesterday I turned on the news and I saw the story about that Russian general or official who is attacking his own country now. I mean, things are crazy, but I want you to know, God is in control. Part two, he brought each kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar's dream to power. He's the one who did it, and he took them out of power. And he will give power to the Antichrist to have his time in the sun with his ten-nation confederacy. But Jesus will defeat them and will ultimately establish his kingdom, which will know no end. I tell you, church, I, I echo what David said. I'm glad he said what he said this morning. He did a great job sharing his heart about this. Fear not. Do not live in fear, believers. As Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, a great God, the only God, has made known what shall come hereafter. And the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, the interpretation of it is certain and it is sure. You need to realize that the future is already secure. It is already certain in its events and in its outcomes. And so we need to stand with boldness. We need to stand for righteousness. And we need to pray that many souls will be rescued from this time that we're in today. Well, I want to conclude by looking at 
Daniel being honored, Yahweh being glorified, and Daniel being promoted, verses 6 through 49. First, Daniel honored, verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face. I want you to imagine that. Here we have a sovereign, despotic ruler who he speaks and it happens. They don't bow down to anything. And here we have this king falling literally on his face to pay homage to Daniel. Don't forget, folks, Daniel at this point is about 18 to 20 years of age. He just graduated. He hasn't even gotten his first paycheck yet. And the king of the world at this time is falling on his face before this little Jewish, this little young Jewish exile. And he commanded that an offering of incense, offering and incense, be offered up to him. What, what that is saying to us is that Nebuchadnezzar is treating Daniel in that moment the same way he would have treated the gods of their kingdom. He's looking at Daniel as perhaps being more than just a human. And so there's a certain worship that is going on here. Wrongly so, but nonetheless, Daniel has done what nobody else can do. Now let's look at verse 47, Yahweh glorified. The king answered and said to Daniel, listen to this, Truly your God is God of gods. So yeah, he's paying homage to Daniel, but he's also looking beyond Daniel, recognizing there's something beyond Daniel. Your God is the God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Verse 48, Daniel is promoted. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him rule over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. How in the world does that happen? How does a deportee from Israel, who, as David Bush said, uh, was a slave, a high-paid slave, I guess, a well-honored slave, but a slave, he wasn't doing what he wanted to do. He was doing what he had to do. But how does a young upstart like that go from being in that lesser condition to being elevated to being over the whole province of Babylon? It only happens when God makes the promotion, when he elevates the individual. And you can bet he has a plan for how he wants to use Daniel. Well, verse 49 says that Daniel then made a request of the king. It doesn't say exactly what it was, but I think we see what it is as we continue. Because the king then appointed, uh, appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. They went out into the country, but Daniel remained at the king's court. I have two final truth points, and I hope that we will really that this will be a blessing to us. Truth point number three. Again, Yahweh is in control of all things. Nothing happens he does not know about and permit. 
What he permits is part of his eternal plan. And what he has planned always comes to pass as he planned it. Now, that's hard to get our minds around because there's a lot of questions. Well, what about this? Well, why does he allow that? Well, uh, well you know what? Maybe when we stand with him someday in eternity, we can ask those questions. Right now, we just have to accept that it's a fact. He is in control. He is sovereign. He is sovereign. And that brings me then to the final truth point. And this is the main takeaway that I want you to embrace today. It's a passage of Scripture. And I've cut it down just for without taking any of the meaning away, just to, for, for brevity's sake. But it's Psalm chapter 2. And what we're going to look at would, would be found in verses 1 through 9. Truth point number 4. Living for God in a pagan world requires us to know that while the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain, the kings of earth set themselves to take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, we got to know that he sits in the heavens and laughs. He sits in the heavens and he laughs at the foolishness of the human heart and mind. The Lord holds them in derision. Look it up. It means to mock. Mankind today goes out in all kinds of sinful expressions and they shake their fist at the God who sits on the throne in heaven and they say, we will not have you rule over us. We will not obey your commands. We will not live according to your righteousness. We will live according to what we want to do when we want to do it. And then they go into the streets, and they parade themselves, and they go into the halls of Congress, and they pass laws, and they do all kinds of stuff on a global scale. But God doesn't sit on his throne wringing his hands. He laughs, and he mocks at their stupidity. Hey, that's what the Scripture says. Man thinks he can do something to bring God down. Can't do a thing. Not even to elevate himself. Going on about the Lord, he has set his king in Zion. We're not seeing that yet, but it's already done. And he will give the nations to him, speaking of Christ. The whole earth will be his possession and he will rule it all with strength and righteousness and all, for all of eternity. Isn't that awesome? So, dear Christian, you can live for God in this pagan world because Christ, the Son of God, died for your sin. You can live for God in this pagan world because he rose from the dead with power and glory, and he brings eternal life to those who receive him. His spirit also indwells and empowers you 
Do you understand that, church? Do you understand if you're a Christian right now that the Holy Spirit of God is indwelling your body? That you have, the, you have access to the God of heaven. His Spirit indwells you. And He can empower you. And He can give you wisdom. And He can give you strength. And he can help you to be like Daniel, to stand in a place where things are very difficult, but nonetheless stand in truth and do it with the right kind of demeanor. We can live for God in this pagan world because Yahweh is unfolding his plans just as he made them. And we can be assured that it will all result in an eternal kingdom where you, believer, will rule and reign with him forever. I want to ask you, Christian, are you living for him today? I'm not asking, did you walk an aisle and say a prayer and get baptized and join the church? If that happened, awesome, great, fantastic. But what I'm asking is, are you actively living out that faith? Are you living for him? Is your trust in him? Where do you turn when things become difficult? And are you pointing others to him? Because that's what we're here for. I encourage you, church, I encourage you, saints, to set your face toward your Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And I encourage you to determine that you will yield to his Spirit's power and his leading and that you will do what he leads you to do to glorify Christ in this world and to help others to see the splendor that is his as Lord of all. Finally, unbelieving friend, I ask you, is God's word piercing your heart? Is God's spirit drawing you? Is he moving you toward Jesus? If so, I would encourage you. I would encourage you to open your heart, to repent, to Allow the faith that is being brought to life in you to have its place. To receive the forgiveness of sin and eternal life that is provided for you through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have questions, we're here to help. We're here to pray with you. We're here to open God's word to help you discover the things that you are looking for. The answers that we seek are in his word. And as we seek the Lord, he will open it up to us. And allow us to find the truth that saves our soul and transforms our life and empowers us to live for him, even in this pagan world. Father, I thank you for the truths that we find here in Daniel chapter 2, the last part of it. And I worship you today as the sovereign God, ruler, king, savior, empowerer, sustainer, Lord, may we collectively never forget your true place in our lives. And may we represent you well. And may your light shine through us in this dark world. And may, may we find ourselves able to give the answers that people are looking for in a way that they can receive it, in a way that your spirit will bless in a way that will make a difference in their heart and life. Lord, I pray for those who are here in the room today, those who are watching uh, online, 
that you would meet them where they are. Speak to their hearts where you know they need to hear your voice and take them to that place of victory over sin and submission to you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. This is On Mission. The Mission Church is located at 12001 Ridgemont Drive in Urbandale. To learn more about our ministry, visit our website at themissiondsm.org or call us at 515-255-2122. We gather for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. We would be honored for you to join us. Have a blessed day, and thank you for listening to On Mission.